Our text is in 2 Thessalonians. So 2 Thessalonians, and I'll read from chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. So it's right near the end of the book. 2 Thessalonians 3, starting at verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, please awaken our minds to a proper understanding of it, and we pray, too, that we would uh, not only understand, but apply it to our lives and apply it to the circumstances of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is another message in the Table Manners series, and as I said last time, they have gotten a little bit more difficult. They are closer and closer together and so then I have to kind of tease them apart. The title for today's message is Suspension from the Lord's Table, which uh, might not be apparent from the text that I read, but you'll kind of see why I read that in a bit. They are integrating together now, and so I really I feel I need to begin with something that's far removed from suspension from the Lord's Table, and that is uh, just church government in general. And I'll just share three principles. First, uh, Jesus is the only head of the church. Now, this is very scriptural. There are several scriptures that point to this. And yet, uh, in the Reformation, it kind of became a rally point because the Roman Catholic Church said that the Pope was the head of the church on earth. Jesus may be the uh, head in heaven, but the Pope is here. And so Protestants refute that. Ephesians 1 verse 22 says... He put all things under his feet. Now, this is referring uh, to uh, God the Father. He put all things under his feet, referring to Jesus, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Second, Jesus has set up church government with authority on this earth. So he's the head, but he has set up a government on the earth. And I'll read Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this concept of Christ having given the keys of the kingdom to the apostles, who then have distributed it throughout the earth over time to those that run the church, is central to an understanding of the proper running of the church on earth. And the third point is that Jesus has not only instituted a government of the church, but he's instituted government officials of the church, which stands to reason. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So Christ heads up the church. He's established a government of the church on the earth that is uh, staffed by people whom he has chosen in various roles. 
Now, these church officers have authority and responsibility as they would need to. And if you've ever attended an ordination service, you have probably heard a sermon preached from 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. And it is referred to as the charge. And I'd say I've probably heard, I don't know, at least seven or eight ordination sermons. And I think half of them or more than half of them have been from that text. It is a very popular text when, when ordaining men and charging them with their responsibilities. So now, among the duties, I won't read all that to you, but among the duties that elders have, they lead the church, they teach, they preach the word, they protect the church from false teachers, they exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine, visit the sick, pray for uh, people, uh, they judge on doctrinal issues. And yet, one of the things that is really central to all of that is that they maintain the discipline of the church. They maintain the purity of the church. So now we come finally to the point of the uh, message today. Uh, elders have a responsibility to maintain the purity of the church, and that is having to be balanced between the individuals and the freedom that individuals have to be different and the good of the body the degree to which as individuals we really don't have liberty to be different, to where we covenant with one another to serve the Lord. And Rush Dooney has a great book on this called The One and the Many, and it's really central to us as people. Uh, we are social beings, and we can stress the individuality of a person to the detriment of the body. We can stress the body to the detriment of the individual. There are errors in both extremes. So let me run through an example of the kind of the escalation of discipline. First, what I'm doing now is what is referred to as a form of discipline, preaching and teaching. Preach and teach the truth, that's a form of discipline. We're essentially encouraging everyone to discipline themselves under the word, in, in the truth. Hear it, believe it, respond to it in obedience. Then we escalate. Reprove sin when you see it. Rebuke sin when you see it. Correct sin when you see it. And then that escalates. And it can lead to suspension from the sacraments and ultimately excommunication from the church. So when you look into the word, though, it is very difficult to find any explicit reference to the fact that a session might preclude someone from partaking of these elements short of being excommunicated from the church in its entirety. And so that's what we need to talk about. First, let me talk about excommunication. So 1 Corinthians 5, actually, the text that I read last week covered that in part. It was the instance where the man was sleeping with uh, his mother, or his father's wife, I'm, I'm sorry, it was his mother, uh, his, uh, what would that be, his father's wife? I mean, it, it must be a different woman than his mother, or else I'd just call it his mother. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And so that's what I wanted to emphasize, taken away from among you. And then down in verse 5, 
Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is, he is being ejected from the church. He's not behaving like a Christian. He doesn't belong in the fellowship. Eject him if he refuses to repent and conform. So that's excommunication. And churches ought to practice it. Many nowadays don't. But we do. And we have had to exercise it at times. So... The next one, though, let me read this to you, and it was our text for today, but now with all of what I've said, I want you to listen to this again with new ears. I'll read to you from 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14 and 15. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. See, this is more akin to what is termed shunning. It's not excommunication. When you excommunicate someone, you are referring to them as an unbeliever. You are taking them from God's kingdom, casting him back into Satan's kingdom. You're saying, you are not one of us. But here, what Paul is writing is, do not count him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. So see, people can be hardening themselves into sin, but yet not such egregious sin as what was occurring in Corinth to where you're trying to minister to them. But it reaches a point where they are rebuffing your uh, uh, involvement in their life, get away from me, I don't want to hear this anymore. In a sense, they begin to isolate themselves from the body. Then it says, do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. So see, what happens is people, when they're on the outs, when they are in sin and they refuse to repent of it, they will seek affiliation from like-minded friends in the congregation. Come on, grab your pitchfork and torch. We're going to go uh, assault the church. That's really what they're thinking. They want to take on the church. Their sin is driving them to that. They are fighting against what ought, they ought to be embracing. Do not keep company with them that he may be ashamed, yet do not count him as an enemy. So see, even though they have begun to regard the church as their enemies, and typically the leadership, especially of the church, as their enemies, we're not yet to regard them as our enemies until they've exhausted the patience that we ought to have with them. God has such patience with sinners, and he expects us as people in his churches and as officers in his church to exercise that same patience with people. But there does reach a point, and some have reached the point where the session will say, you are so obstinate in your sin, and you are so pursuing the course of treating us as enemies that you are not welcome to this table. Because, see, the communion is a participatory act of the covenant, you're baptized into the covenant. You're a baby. You don't know. But this is something you do volitionally. This is something you do with a reminder from God to think about it. What does this mean? Now that is being taken away from you. Why? Because you've hardened your heart against it. You're proving by your sinful hanging on to this obstinacy that you are not reflecting on this. And what's being done then to you in removing you from being able to practice it is that you are no longer even given that opportunity to damn yourself 
by eating this bread and drinking this wine to your detriment. It is obviously something that is included in excommunication. And so the argument from Scripture would be that if the session has the responsibility and the duty to excommunicate people who are behaving like that, then they have the lesser possibility of just having them restrained from coming to this table and participating in this privilege of the covenant. So with that, I want to talk about one thing that I found that I, I found fascinating. Like I said, our time doesn't tend to practice these things. We tend to see very little evidence of, of discipline well done. This is from a book written by Charles Francis Adams. He was a historian. He was uh, a son of John Quincy Adams, and yet he had written many books back in the mid to late 1800s. This is from a book he wrote entitled Some Phases of Sexual Morality and Church Discipline in Colonial New England. And I'm going to read you four daily diary entries, essentially, in a church, a Congregationalist church from New England. January 26th, 1723, Lord's Day. In the afternoon after a sermon on 1 Corinthians 5.5, James Penniman, persisting in a course of idleness, drunkenness, and in neglect of the public worship, had the fearful sentence of excommunication pronounced upon him. So one week later, February 2nd, 1723, Lord's Day. After the public service, the church being desired to stay voted that Benjamin Neal, David Bass and Joseph Neal Jr., members in full communion, have discovered such a perverse spirit and been guilty of such disorderly behavior in the house and worship of God that they deserve to be suspended from communion with us at the Lord's table. One week later, February 9th, 1723, Lord's Day evening, David Bass, acknowledging his offensive behavior and promising to be more watchful for time to come, the brethren signified their consent that he be restored to the liberty of full communion. And now three weeks later, March 1st, 1723, this day being sacrament day, so they probably practiced it once a month on the first Sunday, Benjamin Neal and Joseph Neal Jr., confessing their offensive behavior in the presence of the brethren, were restored to the liberty of full communion. So in the instance of the first man that was mentioned, he was excommunicated. He was ejected from their body, and we see no reflection of him in the ensuing month. But the next Sunday, three men were ejected from the Lord's table. One came back immediately within a week, and the other two came back within three weeks. And so that's an evidence of what is being brought to bear by removing this privilege from these, these men. And it's what we ought to be doing. But we live in a time of such egalitarian rebellion against God and his authority that it's really difficult for any church to fully exercise authority as they ought. Uh, We attempt to do our due diligence, seek out the histories of people who have had a run-in with their past churches, and we can find difficulty in interacting with the leadership of that church just as much as getting to the truth of what's gone on. It's just a sad time we live in. But yet we ought not abandon the drive towards this, it will return. Uh, Church discipline uh, revolving around this is vital to the survival of the church. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of communion. We thank you for your presence at it, for the fact that we look back to what Christ has done to eliminate sin from our lives, and we give you thanks and praise you. And yet, Father, uh, too often we can 
harbor sin in our hearts to the point where we harden ourselves against those that seek to remove it from us. And so we pray that we would not rebel against the power of the Holy Spirit in doing this and that we would be softened uh, to the influence of Christians that love us and have authority over us in the Lord uh, to bring us back to repentance. And so we thank you, Father, for this privilege. We thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen.